Good morning. We continue our study in the parables, and this morning, as we have just read the passage, we are in Luke 7, and it's an interesting narrative um, that we'll take a look at this morning, and, and I think it's a beautiful uh, image of the gospel, uh, but last week, Chad was here, and he preached, but two weeks ago, uh, where we left off was this idea that part of the gospel is the fact that, that, that Jesus Christ is returning. He's currently reigning, but he will return. And we, we, we wrestle with this idea of do we live as if that is true, or do we live as if he's never going to come back? And what we left off with was this idea that we can practically act like we believe that he is returning when we do a couple of things, one of which is practice his presence. And that means remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is with us always. And we start to think like that, and we start to think, okay, what is it that I would do knowing that Christ is present here with me? Then we also thought about that, that if he's coming back, and we were challenged by uh, a couple of the resolutions from Jonathan Edwards, uh, one of them which was he said that I resolved to not do that which I would not do if I knew I only had an hour left before the trumpet was blown, right? If you knew that Christ was coming back for sure in one hour, what would you not do? <laughs> and he says, so act like that's the case all the time and don't do those things, right? Well, that's easier said than done, but that's a challenge. Live as if his return is true. Live as in a way that we can celebrate his return rather than fear his return. And today we're actually going to see uh, moving from that idea of, of his returning to this beautiful image of his gospel presentation, I believe, while he was here on earth. So we, we named a couple of things, and Randy tried to pin me down on them this morning, and I was speaking extemporaneously last time. And so I came up with eight things, and I could only come up with seven this morning, so forgive me. <laughs> but, but a couple of those things is that we've got to recognize that Jesus came. Uh, that, that he, the incarnation was there. He lived a perfect life. Uh, he died. He rose again. He ascended. He's currently reigning and he's returning. And I believe that there was a plan back there. He planned to come. So there's eight. I think so. I'll have to go look, listen to my own sermon again. Um, but what we have to recognize is that part of when Jesus was on the earth, he was a prophet in a sense. He was, he was telling them, foretelling, right? Not just foretelling. Prophets can do two things, right? Sometimes we think of prophets only telling us what's going to happen in the future. That's one side. But there's a foretelling which is telling the truth. And Jesus Christ told the truth when he was here. Part of that truth that he, that he spoke and explicitly in this passage is the gospel. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning. And I believe it's such a beautiful idea when we look at this woman um, who was known. She was a woman of the city. Uh, she was broken and, and I think in, in, in a lot of ways unable to escape her reputation. You think like, uh, what were you known as before you came to Christ? And how hard is it sometimes to escape that reputation? And people, you tell people, no, I'm a believer. I'm, 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 I'm saved. I, and they're like, what? They just can't believe it because they knew the old you. I was, uh, you know, out of town last week racing and um, going to dinner with my friends. And we're just in different places and, you know, spiritually. But I love it. I love hanging out with them. And we were bringing up this one person that we know in common. And they said, you know that guy who lives in California? I said, yeah. I did a lot of things with him. And they're like, yeah, he says he's a Christian now. I said, I know. Isn't that great? And they're like, oh, I could tell you all kinds of stories. <laughs> We all could, couldn't we? 
We all can tell stories about people we know who then have a life transformation, and, and, and God have mercy on us because we too, we have people who could tell lots of stories on us about our pre-conversion lifestyle, correct? But here's the gospel. Just as this lady who was a woman of the city who had a reputation, she was broken, but in the eyes of Christ, she was a woman who was loved and forgiven. And that is absolutely what every one of us wants most. I believe that we all want assurance of forgiveness and salvation. And so we're going to look at that this morning. And the major doctrine that I'm going to defend this morning is that assurance of forgiveness and love is found in repentance and faith and love towards our merciful Savior, Jesus. We all want assurance of forgiveness and salvation. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack what this looks like to have faith and love towards Christ in response to, and this is interesting, in response to the assurance that we have. You know, sometimes we, we, I think we mess up the gospel. And so I want to try to clearly articulate the gospel this morning. And, the, and, and how I'm going to do that, I'm going to make three stops. We're going to take a look. The first stop, this idea of religion without the gospel, because that's certainly one way that we can live our lives, is have religion without the gospel. Two, let's, let's be clear about what the gospel is. And three, what's a proper response to the gospel? So religion without the gospel, what is the gospel, and what's a gospel response? Those are the three places we're going to stop. But as a primer to that, um, I want to put up on the screen a, a quick little quote. And it's actually from Robert McGee. He has a book called Search for Significance. It's a very good book. But it's one of the lies, one of the four lies that he addresses in that book is, I am what I am and I cannot change. So many people believe that. So many people believe that whatever they are, that's it, that's their lot in life, and that's who they're going to be for the rest of their lives. But the gospel literally says you can and will be changed. And that is so important for us to grasp. We have to fight the lie that the devil will tell us over and over and the lie that we tell ourselves that we are what we are and we cannot change. That is absolutely disbelief. That is absolutely not believing the gospel. And when we believe that, there's all sorts of ramifications. But let's, let's unpack this idea. What we see here explicitly in the text. So verse 36, it gives us some good context, doesn't it? It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So he's saying, Jesus, come eat with me. Which is an interesting idea, right? That's a pretty intimate thing. Uh, it's going to take some time. And, and there's going to be plenty of conversation, right? So this Pharisee had something planned. And he wanted to invite Jesus. And it doesn't give us any indication of that this person was a follower of Christ or anyone who had committed anything to Christ. It's a Pharisee, and he's inviting Jesus to, I don't know if it's lunch or what, but come eat with me. What wasn't planned was this woman of the city stopping by. All right, so imagine you're, you've invited some guests over for lunch, and you're, you've got this kind of a high-profile person in your home, and you're enjoying everything, and you're hoping your house looks nice enough. Hopefully, they're enjoying the food that you've served them. Then all of a sudden, busting through your door is a well-known prostitute. And you're like, uh, what? Right? No one invited you. But not only that, she doesn't stop at just busting through your door. She goes to your high-profile guest and starts doing strange things, like kissing your guest's feet rubbing ointment and washing feet and you're just sitting there thinking what in the world is happening that's that's what i imagine is going through this pharisee's mind 
He invited this guy to lunch or whatever. And then here comes this lady who he knows about, obviously. And he's thrown back by this whole thing. He, he, he actually uh, starts to question, is Jesus really a prophet? Because he would let a woman like this touch him. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, right, what is he questioning? Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. Comma, for she is a sinner. Do you see that? He's thinking of himself in a distinct way from her. And that's what we do as people. We categorize ourselves. We're, you know, I'm in this camp, you're in that camp, we're in these camps. But what's interesting is he makes a very sharp distinction between himself and this lady that he sees her as a sinner, which implies that he's not a sinner. This is weird, this is weird thing that's going on there. And I can't expound much more than that because it doesn't say much more than that. But you see there's a, there's a pharisaical heart in this that he's saying, he can have a meal with me, he can come in my house and hang out with me, but when this lady comes in, he should know who she is. She's a sinner. Right away, he's made a distinction. And this is a challenge to Jesus as, as a prophet, right? He says, if, he, if this man were a prophet, he would know, and he wouldn't be okay with it. And so Jesus' response to this, uh, this idea, as you see in verse 40, and Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it, teacher. So Jesus goes into this parable. A certain man, right, certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And we go through that. But it's an interesting idea that this guy has in his mind this concept of who Jesus Christ should rightfully accept. And who he should rightfully accept is not the sinners, but those who have their stuff together. And, and, and what's interesting is I believe that this Pharisee would have been a very religious man. From the outside, it would be someone that we could look at and say, you know what, their life probably is a testimony against me. I think that if we hung out with Pharisees um, today, if we could find some, we would probably be like, yeah, I'm not as good as you, like in a lot of ways. You know what? I think that we've got to let that sting us. There's other people in other religions who probably live more moral lives than we do in some ways. Why? Well, there's a number of different ways we can answer that. Sometimes I think that there is this fear-driven mentality, all right, and this works-based salvation. But I think that when you come in contact with some of these people, I work with different uh, people from all sorts of different religions, and there's a lot of Sikhs I work with. And some of them, I'm like, you're pretty legit. I mean, they, they literally are good people. And they really believe what they believe, and they live as if they believe it. And I look here, and I'm looking at, I look around, and I say, look at my own life, and I look at, our, at church in general, and I think, sometimes we don't live as if we believe this stuff is true. And even those who are practicing what I would say are false religions follow it with greater zeal than we when we claim to have the true religion. What a testimony against us. So I believe that if we hung out with true Pharisees, we'd probably feel like, you're pretty legit, man. Like, I probably can't come up with much against you from the outside. 
All right? But there's the pharisaical heart that obviously Jesus rebukes. And he has what I believe is religion without the gospel. And so Jesus goes through 44 through 46. And he says, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has, she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And this is a really interesting idea here. We're going we're gonna to unpack that idea a little bit more throughout the morning. I wish we had more time because there's so much in that very sentence. Do you know that when you're living a religious life rather than a gospel-driven life, you have very little need for forgiveness? Or you think you do. We think we do. Why? Because we think we're meeting the requirements of the law. We think we're good enough people. And when we don't need forgiveness, when we tell ourselves we're good enough, we literally are saying, I have nothing to be forgiven of. I have offended no one. I've kept the law. I've met the requirements. And that's what he's feeling like. And this is a, this is a direct rebuke against, against him from Christ. And he says, but he who is forgiven little loves little. What is this in contrast to? Right there, the verse before it, 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins... Don't be confused, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And so Jesus establishes this relationship of loving much to forgiving much. And it's actually an accusation against Simon, who has loved little. Do you see that? He hasn't loved because Jesus has tied these things to this woman. Her acts are out of love, and that love is from being forgiven. And he, he presents this big cycle to this guy. And I'm sure this guy's stepping back and thinking, what? So I want to unpack a couple of things that go along with that. And I was reading J.C. Ryle last week uh, on some of his thoughts on this. And so I want to share a couple of them because I think they're really, really good. J.C. Ryle notes, he says, It is quite possible to have a decent form of religion and yet know nothing of the gospel of Christ. It is quite possible to have a decent form of religion yet know nothing of the gospel of Christ. And he unpacks three different ways that we can do that and that are tied to this. He says, respect Christianity, but know nothing of the gospel it preaches. Stop right there. How many people do you know, and maybe yourself, that you respect Christianity, but you know nothing of the gospel it preaches? I come in contact with people all the time who, when I say I'm a Christian, or they find out I'm a Christian, they have an idea of Christianity and a vague respect for Christianity, but have no idea of the gospel it preaches. You know what? This is, this is shameful for us because we have turned Christianity into something other than the gospel. And now we, we walk around and we say, let us be known by these things. And those things are numerous. And at, this, at the very same time, the most important thing that we should be preaching, the very most important thing that we should be known by, the gospel, is the thing that even we are confused on. If we're confused on it, how in the, world's gonna, how in the, in the world is the world going to be clear on the fact? If you and I don't know what the gospel is, and we're, we're living in this religious life, and the world looks at us and they say, I like your religion, there's some good that came out of your religion, but I don't know anything about the gospel because you don't know anything about the gospel. 
Do you get that? And we're supposed to be known as followers of Christ because we've benefited from the gospel. But you know what actually happens is we live quite decent religious lives ignorant of the gospel. We do that. We do that. I do that. You do that. And then the world looks at us and says, I respect it, but I don't know anything about the beauty that's there. Tell me about forgiveness of sin because I don't see it. Because what I hear is that when someone sins among you, they're torn apart, they're eaten, there's blood in the water. What I hear is people being hypocrites, saying that they have no sin in their life, yet secretly, in the dark, they're doing all kinds of nasty things. And it's scandalous. Well, every one of us in this room kind of feel like, oh, right? But here's the truth, is that we don't have to hide our sins. The scripture literally says we're to do what? Confess our sins. I'm not saying that everyone's got to get up right here and say, here's all the worst things I've ever done and I want you all to know about it. That's not what it means. But what it means is living in true biblical community is that you can be open and honest with people, confess real jacked up stuff in your life. There should be a few people who know you really know you, but we're afraid. We're afraid to live like that. And if we're afraid to live like that, then what do we do when we get outside of these doors when it's even less safe to be genuine and real and open? You, no way you're going to confess your sins to someone else if you can't be open and honest and vulnerable with your biblical community. And then we look at Galatians you know, 6, and it says that when there's someone is trapped in sin, when they're fallen in sin or ensnared by sin, those who are spiritual among you must restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Then yet keep watch of your own self, lest you fall, but how do we know if someone's caught in sin in order to restore them in a spirit of gentleness if we're all hiding? Because what we're doing is we're actually living a pretty decent religious life absent of the gospel. Deep religiosity, weak gospel. J.C. Ryle notes another thing. He says there's a behavior side. He says behave correctly, yet hate the idea of justification by faith and salvation by grace. So here, if you want to be religious without the gospel, behave correctly, but at the same time, hate the idea that anyone could be saved by faith and grace. <laughs> you, may, you may be thinking, well, what does that mean? Let me tell you what it means. It means that you and I run around trying to act right to prove we're saved, and as soon as we find someone else who's not acting right, we're saying, you're not saved, and if they say, I'm saved by grace through faith, you say, that's not how it works, because I have to be good, and if I have to be good to be saved, you have to be good. Isn't that what we do? Behave correctly, yet be frustrated over any idea of justification by faith. And what it makes us is super critical of each other because every one of us feels the pressure that we've got to behave correctly if we're going to be saved. That's religion without the gospel. The third thing that I want to share with you that I gleaned from JC says, lack of real love for Jesus Christ. To have religion without the gospel is to lack love for Jesus Christ. And I think we see this with the Pharisee right here. He had a lot of religious stuff going on, but he lacked a true love for Jesus. But here's a woman of the world coming in. And what does she have that the Pharisee does not have? If you, if you made two columns and said, here's what she has, and here's what he has. Under the moral headline, you would probably see that this guy's got a lot of good things going on. And under hers, 
probably the list of all the people that she, all of her customers. Just imagine that. Here's all the customers. Here's all the people that know her this way. And you think, well, if I have to weigh the scales, who's going to win this one? The Pharisee, clearly. He's a better person. Out with this sinner. But then when you set up the next set of columns and say, love for Christ, her scale is plunk. His scale is like light as a feather. He has no real love for Christ. Why? He doesn't really feel like he needs Christ. He doesn't need forgiveness. Why? Because column one looks so good. His resume was so rich. Man, that's religion without the gospel. So with that, I think that we have to have this idea and challenge of are we ignorant of the gospel? Are we, are we just totally trying hard to control our behavior while at the same time hating the idea that anyone else could be saved apart from works? Do we hate, ask yourself, do I hate the idea of anyone else being saved by grace apart from good works? And that may be a thing that's going to take you time to, to, to wrestle with, but I think that's part of what we have to look at is if we're ignorant of the gospel, we will hate, truly hate the idea of anyone who is saved by grace because what we want is we want someone who professes Christ to live perfect there ever after. We put our, that pressure on ourselves. But then also, I want to ask you, do you find yourself clinical and cold towards Christ? Or do you have a real sweetness and love towards him? And I'm reminded of this, this idea that the Puritans, when they looked at the Great Awakening in America, they said, well, you know, how do we know who's truly converted? Because, you know, tens of thousands of people were being converted, and it was really hard. And back to Edwards, he says, well, by their affections, who do they love? It's not whether or not they still struggle with sin. Who do they love? And we have to ask that. It's not whether or not we still struggle with sin, because we will always struggle with sin, but who do we love? Do we love Christ? And that's this woman. That's exactly what she could say is, I love Jesus. But are we, as Christians, clinical and cold towards Christ? We know a lot of facts about Christ, but we've never wept at his feet. We've never been broken over our sins, never feeling absolutely crushed and saying, Lord, I come as a real sinner before you, looking for only grace and love. So what is the gospel? I believe it's no fear of punishment and only assurance of love and forgiveness in Christ. No fear of punishment, but only assurance of love and forgiveness in Christ. You know, I believe this, that, 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 that is exactly what it means. And whenever I say I think we're ignorant of the gospel, I think that we have gospel plus stuff going on. We say, okay, Jesus loves some people. Uh, he did some things, kind of made salvation available but it's up to you to do the rest. And then you're right back into works-based salvation. And so what we have to look at is saying that for the believer, there is no punishment that remains. And that is not to say that, that sin goes unpunished because that's not true. What actually happens is all sin is punished. I've said this before, and I'll, I'll, for as long as I get to preach, I will always say this, sin is punished. It's either punished in Christ or it's punished in hell. God, did ne God never turned a blind eye to sin, not one time. So your sin that is forgiven is not unpaid for. It is not unpunished. It has been someone got punished for it. Jesus did. 
And so when we look at this and say, what is the gospel? No fear is punishment. That means that we come to Jesus and we say, I am really sick, I'm broken, I'm dead, and I expect from you love and assurance. Why? Because Jesus was punished in my place. And what actually is a beautiful thing is to look at the tenderness of Christ because this assurance of love and mercy is actually one of the biggest things that I believe attracts us to Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Why is Jesus sweet? Why is he, why is he attractive to you? Because in him you find love, assurance, and mercy, not punishment. That is sweet. Have you ever known somebody who just loved you for you? What do you feel towards that person? Don't you want to be around them? Don't you want to be devoted to them? This is something I struggle with. With you know, as a parent, it's so hard to to weigh the the balance of when am I just loving, assuring, and merciful because I want to be that person. At the same time, I'm kind of jerk dad. So you got to do some jerk dad stuff sometimes. But only Jesus truly offers people for real, free love, assurance, and mercy. No strings attached. And that's attractive. And that's the gospel that we preach. And, 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 and I'm reminded of this. Uh, J.C. Ryle said another one of these good things. It's just a morning to quote him, I guess. He said, a full and free offer of forgiveness is generally God's chosen instrument for bringing sinners to repentance. Do you hear that? Do you get that? A full and free offer of forgiveness is usually God's chosen instrument to bring sinners to repentance. So we preach the gospel. What is the gospel? A free and full assurance of forgiveness of sins. And that's hard for people to understand. And I can remember even my grandfather asking my dad when my dad came to Saving Faith. And my grandpa said, are you, are you serious? Like, really? Like, it, okay, what if somebody has lived this really horrible life all their whole life and then they're on their deathbed and they believe in Christ, they trust in Christ. Are they really forgiven? Yes. And that's hard for us to actually believe, isn't it? We're like, no, 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 no. There's got to be some time for them to pay their dues, right? you got to serve in preschool a little bit. Can't get off that easy. But that's the truth, is that it's full and free. Full assurance of forgiveness and free assurance of forgiveness. There's nothing that you do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do to ever pay it back. It's not a loan. It's not Jesus saying, I'll front you some, some mercy, but from here on out, you got to pay me back a little over time. It's full and free assurance of forgiveness. That is the gospel that we preach. But here's the flip side. There's a response to that. That holiness is a byproduct, not the condition of gospel salvation. You know, I believe that this woman clearly repented of her sins and was forgiven, right? Um, but she was forgiven because of her faith in Christ, not because of her ability to clean herself up before coming to Christ. This woman has been forgiven. Look at this over here. It says, therefore, uh, actually it says, 46, you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? 
And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I do not envision a woman who is perfectly comfortable with her life and only comes to Jesus to pay a little honor to him. She is coming broken over her sins. The tears she's weeping are not fan club tears. The tears she's weeping are the images of all the horrible things that she's done for how long we don't know. The tears that, wet, that, that caused Jesus' feet to be wet and her hair had to dry were not fan club tears. They were tears of a woman broken over her sin, coming to the only person she knows who is able to actually free her and forgive her. Repentance is necessary. It is part of the gospel narrative. But here's the deal. Repentance is not self-reformation. So I want to go into our last stop here and spend our time on the response because I think faith and repentance have to be part of what goes into our response to the gospel. What is the gospel? It's no fear of punishment, only assurance of love and forgiveness in Christ. That's the gospel. How do we respond to the gospel? Faith and repentance. Now, explicitly, faith is mentioned here. Faith and repentance aren't mentioned here, so I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to say that this is what the text says. But from a systematic theology perspective, you never divorce repentance from saving faith. You don't get one without the other. Because how in the world do you get faith and forgiveness if you've never repented of your sin? What are you forgiven of? What does that even mean? When someone comes to you and, 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 and uh, they've, they've done something bad, they've, they've offended you, and you say to them, I forgive you, that can work in one way because they've only violated you. But in God's economy, you don't get forgiven without a heart change. You don't get forgiven because you had a heart change. Don't mess that up. But you don't get forgiven without a heart change. A heart change flows from faith and repentance. So let me talk about those words just a little bit. Let me start with faith. Faith is knowledge, belief, trust. Those are some of the things that we can say about faith. Uh, I'm not going to go into the Greek. I don't want to bore you with that. But the, that's New Testament faith includes knowledge, belief, and trust. All right. Well, part of that, I believe, is we have to know the offer. To respond to the gospel in faith, quote, you have to know what the offer is. That's the knowledge part of faith. But not only that, you have to believe it's true. You can't just know about it and disbelieve it. You've got to actually believe it's true. This woman came to Jesus' knowledge. Okay, I believe that she probably is in that group that heard him preaching. Um, when we remember back uh, to Matthew 11, you know, where it says, uh, Come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. I believe she heard a message like that and says, I know this. He gives rest to those who are sinners, and I believe it. That's what drove her to seek this guy out. She heard, hey, this is where he's eating. Imagine this, literally. She's like, I know where he is, and that's where I'm going. I have not been invited, but I believe if I go, I will be received. 
she did not expect to bust open that door. I don't even know if they had doors on this house. This is my imagination. She's just like, bam, goes through. She's like, where is he? There he is. Boom. But her thought was not, I wonder, I wonder if you'll, I wonder if you'll receive me. <laughs> she had full assurance of reception. And that motivated her. So she had knowledge, but she believed it, and she trusted in the one who makes the good offer. So I believe faith has to be part of that, knowledge, belief, and trust. But repentance, the metanoia, right, or metanoia, is a change in beliefs, right, and is have a change in, of your mind. But in that, I believe, is, it's the, the, the definition is a little broader than that, and I will always argue for this, that it's a change in beliefs, affections, and commitments. Change in your beliefs, you have a change of mind, but you also change what you love and you change what you're committed to. I believe here this woman had a change of mind. She had a change in her affection. And she's going to have a change in her commitments as well. And that's repentance that leads to, I believe, a true heart change. And we always remember that even those things are gifts from God, that he gives us a new heart, and the Holy Spirit regenerates, regenerates us, brings what was dead to life. That's the only way that we can have faith and repentance in the first place. Faith and repentance are not works of our own that we produce for our own salvation. That's a sermon for another day, but rest. What is the response to this free and full offer of assurance and love? It is faith and repentance that go hand in hand. But you know what's beautiful to this? And I want to, just for a second, thought experiment. Think, don't say it, think on your greatest sin. I don't know if you've got one. I've got, I've got some in my mind. I think that's probably the most messed up thing that I've done. Now, that's a great fun thing to do, right? Think about your greatest sin. But think about that. You know, what's hard about it is that you can't take that back. I'm sure as you think through that, you think, oh, I wish I could do this over. I wish I could take that thing back. But every one of us are stuck. We can't change the past. Just like this woman couldn't change her past, she couldn't change her reputation. Everybody knew who she was. Everybody knew what she had done. But the beauty is that we are overcome with love by being forgiven. And maybe you don't believe that yet. Maybe you just think of the worst sin you've ever committed and you think, how could I ever be forgiven of this? What do I have to do to earn my way back to a right standing before God? Maybe that's what you think. But if you think that, you're believing in religion rather than the gospel. The gospel is, says, stand naked before a holy God and feel the depth of shame and guilt that is right, but at the same time be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to save the greatest sinners, who then speaks on our behalf so as to clothe us, to take our shame and guilt and do away with it so that we can stand before a holy God and literally say, we love you, and with the greatest confidence we can approach you, that is powerful when you actually believe that. So a response, I believe, is faith and repentance, but it's also forgiveness and love. 
When we are overcome, I believe this leads us to love because he first loved us, enabling us to first love Christ, but then to love others. And I want to leave you with the thought that's, that he ends this with. He says, he who is forgiven much loves much, right? He who is forgiven much loves much. I want to invite you to let that burn you up the next time you hate another sinner. Remind yourself, he who has been forgiven much loves much. If you've forgotten about your own forgiveness, you will have little love. But you remind yourself of your own forgiveness often, you will have greater love because it's a byproduct of being forgiven yourself. He loved you, you love him, then you love others. So as we close this morning, I want us to believe this offer for ourselves, but also I want us to boldly proclaim this offer that a full and free offer of forgiveness is generally God's chosen instrument to bring sinners to repentance. Know the gospel, preach the gospel. But in order to preach it effectively, you better believe it. You benefit from it before you preach it. Amen.